It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is CEO Dar Vasegi. Dar has enjoyed a prestigious career in specialty retail and food brands for more than 20 years. But he began his career flipping hamburgers at McDonald's at 16 and has worked for many of the largest food brands in the world since then, including Yum Brands, Dunkin' Brands, Arby's, Jamba Juice, and Chobani. Dar became the CEO of Yoshinoya USA on August 13 and earlier graduated from the University of Southern California with a BS in finance and economics and later attained his MBA from Stanford. Darvasegi, welcome into the corner office. Thank you for having me, Brent. Wonderful. Well, you know, we kind of like to start with the early years, and I want to hear about that guitar tour, tour so we're definitely going to get to that at some point. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and, you know, what was your family life like? So I was born in the Middle East, in Iran to be specific, and, yeah, and my family moved here in 1978 when I was 11 years old. It was, this was the time of the revolution, and that was when the Shah was deposed. Exactly, and and all that chaos, and and so my family moved to a suburb of Los Angeles, and you know a lot of families came here for education. They brought their kids here, but they all thought they would go back. With what happened with the revolution, you know, we were sort of cut off, and you know, my family, you know, who was never wealthy to begin with, we lost everything, and 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 pretty so, much had to leave it all behind. I imagine, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah. So, so, you know, you kind of start fresh and that is a life-changing experience. Um, and, and, uh, um, were your parents in their thirties or forties, you know, were they kind of mid midlife at that stage or have they already had pretty successful careers in, in Iran? So I'm the youngest of seven children. So my, <laughs> my parents were already in their forties and their fifties. And so it was a little late for them to adapt fully. And so they couldn't, yeah. So, so, you know, but the kids, the kids, uh, adapted and, you know, we all went to work because that's, that's, that's what, <laughs> that's you, what you had to do. That's right. what you did to survive. What kind of business did uh, your parents have uh, when they were in Iran? Were they in professionals? Did they have, you know, have their own business entrepreneurial background? So, so not really. My, my father was a, I would say a, a government employee. He was a mid-level bureaucrat. Um, and, you know, I worked in the customs department and my mother was busy with seven kids oh she was a teacher as well fantastic yes she was a teacher and then she worked in the uh department of education etc uh so so you know good values 
if you will, but not a lot of help in terms of direction. <laughs> well, how did they start over? Did they go into entrepreneurial business? Were they able to find, you know, careers in their profession uh, after coming over to the States? So my, my mom started uh, sewing and making draperies and she started, started a business where she literally made uh, curtains and draperies for people in the garage. And my father, you know, who was, you know, approaching retirement age, um, by that point, you know, he went to work as a, you know, warehouse supervisor for a friend of his. Um, there was just, you know, they, they spoke very little English, um, and it was probably very tough to learn English at that age. Of course, do what they had to do. And you were the youngest, you said, or the oldest of seven? No, I'm, I was the youngest. You're the youngest, right. So how the, the oldest sibling, how old were, how old were they, or how old was he or she when you arrived? So the thing about, you know, being... Uh, the youngest of seven children is you don't really grow up with six siblings because there's such a <laughs> there's such an age difference yeah, that right. you know they're in very very yeah he may as well my oldest brother may as well have been my uncle <laughs> so uh, we were all in many ways may have had that responsibility too knowing kind of the yeah, Middle and, Eastern culture and sure and in some ways he did today he's he's around seventy um, and and a very healthy uh, an active seventy. Um, so, so huge age difference. Um, but, but, you know, we're a close family. We, we stay in touch. We all sort of gravitated, uh, from various parts of the world, gravitated back to Southern California so we could be near each other. But, you know, we all started over again. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you had to. And were, uh, your, your older siblings, uh, able to assimilate into school straight away? Was that kind of part of it? Or were some, maybe some had to go to work right away, right? Given the age differences. Sure. Some of them who were older already had families. You know, they started businesses, very successful businesses, also in the restaurant industry. Which Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Apparently, that's your destiny as an immigrant. <laughs> well, we all love Persian food, Jar. So, you know, that's that's not a hard thing to do. And I, I, I know of several very good Persian restaurants in Southern California. So maybe even some that are connected with your family. Yeah. For, for my family, it was usually pizza and uh, Italian <laughs> okay. food. But yeah, I mean... The, my my uh, my brothers and you know sisters all all did very well and you know some are lawyers and some are engineers and and you know a couple of them owned restaurants that did very well. So when you came over, you were ten or eleven, so middle school age or still in elementary school. Where where did you kind of enter in? So I started the sixth grade here. Sixth grade, right? Got it. Good. So so that was early enough to where you could kind of assimilate. And, and any language skills at all when you arrived? You know, I studied English um, several years in, back in Iran. In, in mm -hmm. Iran, and I I thought I spoke English until I got here and realized I didn't speak English <laughs> at all. <laughs> I'm sure, and given the slang and the dialect of Southern Californians, like, what did you just say? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I still remember that the most complicated thing I could say when I got here was, where did you buy those shoes? Very important question for yeah, a sixth well, and, grader. And that I had just memorized. <laughs> I love it. Who or what were some of the early influences in your life? Uh, you know, that assimilation process is difficult. And, you know, you were young, but still, I'm sure it had its challenges. In a situation where your parents are, are out of touch with your particular surroundings. You know, my parents didn't speak the language. They didn't understand the culture. You know, they brought in uncles. Um, and aunts who could be helpful, who had been here for decades. Yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. yeah family we had a lot here. of family here, and 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 you know, right or wrong, they were it. <laughs> so we, you know, and 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 so you you took the advice and the guidance where you could or where it made sense to you, 
and and you did what you could with it. Once you went on, you know, once I went on to um, school, you know, there's the occasional teacher, but that didn't really start for me until college. I think a little later on. Yeah. Yeah. Once I got into college, I remember specifically, um, I had a finance professor named Maury Goudsward at USC. And I latched onto him as a role model. He was, I just thought he was a really cool cat and I wanted to be him. (laughs) In those earlier years when the uncles and aunts were more the influencers, was there one or two in particular that, uh, you know, you kind of loved not only from a family standpoint, but, you know, kind of provided that mentoring and that guidance. And if so, what were the kinds of things they told you about American culture and, you know, what you needed to do to adapt? Yeah, I mean, I had, had, you know, three uncles here who all, um, you know, chipped in with their time, some more than others. And, you know, they, they, they provided a variety of, of functions. And it wasn't, you know, when you're that young, it's not as much advice as it is, you know, just spending time with you, taking you around, right, right. Uh, showing Speaking you know, the language with you, exactly, practicing with you. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I had an, a couple of uncles. I remember, uh, you know, he would pack all the kids because I had cousins, I had cousins here as well. <laughs> of so, yeah, sure. so, you know, we would pack, you know, seven people into a small BMW <laughs> and drive up to Yosemite. And I think we made that trip six times, you know, and you don't realize it at the time, but those are very formative experiences. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Were you a good student in school, Dar, in, the, in those middle school and high school years? You know, I, I was a terrible student. Uh, <laughs> because, You're not the first CEO to say that. Yeah, no, well, you know, I, I, I didn't speak the language. I, back, in, back in Iran, I was a very good student. Right, um, right. But once I got here, you know, the language problem just, I failed a lot of classes. I, you know, I remember that I was sitting in math class and science class, and what was being covered were things I had either learned years earlier or experimented with um, you know, uh, at, at home, but I just, the language barrier was just too much. And so, you know, all through middle school and high school, it was hit and miss. Um, you know, you also are, are, are a bit distracted by just trying to make sense of the world and trying to fit in and, and doing well in school is just not your priority. What about outside of class, uh, sports, music, theater, art, anything that you got engaged with, uh, during those earlier years? So I always worked, um, because, and I, and I, and I believed that everybody did. It wasn't until like I was in my thirties that I realized that not everybody worked in school and not everybody paid for their own college. Well, you went to USC. So, I mean, right. <laughs> yes. There had to be a few of your college roommates there that, uh, probably didn't work much when they went through school. No, but, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm still paying back the loans. <laughs> I can imagine. You know, the, so, so I was always busy working. The only thing. Restaurants and so forth or what types of things. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so when I was 16, I worked at McDonald's and before that, you know, when you're too young to work, I would mow lawns and pick, you know, rake leaves yep. in the neighborhood, yep. uh, for, 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 uh, pocket money. But at some point around 15, I decided I wanted to be a rock star. Ah, okay. Got it. So now we get to talk about the guitar touring. So is that the first instrument you picked up? You know, my father was a musician and he played a, a you know, classic Persian instrument. Um, but yes, for me, uh, you know, there was a piano at home and nobody ever played it. But, you know, the, the, the guitar thing was more about, I saw it as a way to have a presence, to get on stage, to perform, to be liked, to, to be popular, uh, to be in control. 
which was something that you know you struggle with a lot when you when you when your life has been sort of um, you know stopped and restarted. Uh, you were an immigrant, you know. You're an immigrant, you know. Obviously, it's a lot of adjustment going on. So, so did you join a band? Was it something you did, you know, more yeah, individually? I, I, I grew my hair, which you know, <laughs> I think, I think freaked out my whole family for a while, and <laughs> and so I started playing guitar. I started hanging out with a different crowd, and 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 uh, you know, joined a variety of bands, and you know, I played you know heavy metal. This was this was the '80s, so so I spent a lot of time on. You know the Sunset Strip at at uh, the Roxy and Gazaris and the Troubadour wow. and yeah and yeah I played a variety of bands bands um, and then eventually I you know heard Gary Moore and switched immediately to to the playing the blues I played that for many years played a little flamenco later and and now if I can squeeze out fifteen minutes a week in the garage I'll <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll play a little so were these paid gigs. You know, I've 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 played for as much as two thousand dollars for a gig, and I've and I've played for as little as a pound of coffee. <laughs> Sometimes you needed the coffee more than the two thousand, I imagine. <laughs> well, that's great. So, t- did you take some time off to do that, or was that always in conjunction with your studies, either in high school or college? No, it was. Uh, well, I mean, studies. I'm not sure there was a lot of studying going on, but. <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I, I start, there was probably a brief moment, you know, of about a year or two where I thought I could make a career of the music, but you know, you, you get on the sunset strip, you watch how many people there are out there playing as well or better than you. And it it became very clear to me that that was not going to be much of a living. It's a different competitive field. It's it's very competitive, but it's also you know you can become a working musician and and scrounge up a living, but but you know becoming a a rock star is very similar to becoming a professional athlete or a CEO in that regard. Yeah, it's probably a little easier, <laughs> a little easier to <laughs> yeah, a little easier to be CEO than it is to be a, to be a rock star. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So you went on to SC. Um, what was kind of the determination for for going there? I mean, it's obviously a good school. You had to have decent grades to be able to get in. Uh, but was its proximity? Was there, you know, a course of study there that you were interested in? Or, you know, did it just uh, kind of fall into your lap, so to speak? So so it was certainly not decent grades. Um, and, and, you know, I came out of high school, I want to say like 1.9 or 2.0 GPA. Um, and I, and I did not go immediately to college. I started, started a couple of different businesses and I was doing the music thing. So Dar, tell us about some of the other entrepreneurial activities you were involved with. So when I graduated from high school, um, I did a couple, couple different things. I started this company selling window shades door to door to door. And, you know, my mother was making curtains and draperies. So I thought this fit in very well. And, and, um, you know, that, that was very difficult and it was uh not an easy way to make any money i also (laughs) you learned a little bit about customer service i imagine though right i did i did and i learned i needed to have very thick skin which i didn't (laughs) at the time right right the other thing i did was when i turned 18 i got my real estate license and i became a realtor and i was selling selling homes and so i think you know in the year and a half that i did that i must have sold you know three or four homes and that turned out to be a lot harder than it looked as well. So I think that was all, you know, part of the process of me, you know, saying at one point, 
you know, maybe I should give this college thing a try. And were those productive years uh, when you were selling the, the shades and real estate and so forth? Was that uh, kind of spending money or were you al- already supporting yourself? It was the years of, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to, <laughs> how am I going to make a living? You know, yeah, I remember at that point I had only been in the country about six or seven years. And, and so I was trying to piece it all together. And, you know, my mom being an educator, my family always valued education a lot. And, you know, she's saying, you got to go to college, you got to go to college. And I'm saying, no, no, mom, I can do this. I can do this. And at some point I realized, no, she's right. I need to, I need to do, you know, I need to, I need a different plan here. Was your dad, was your dad a proponent for you going on to college as well? Uh, my dad, yes. I mean, certainly, but you know, my dad didn't weigh in very heavily on these things. Uh, you know, I think my dad only gave me career advice once in my life. He said, you know, he said, you know, when you went at work, it's important to be obedient. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've disappointed him. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I guess it's always a balance, right? You've got to have a little bit of that obedience, but you also have to be able to direct and, uh, you know, take charge of things uh, as you grow the corporate ladder, so to speak. Yeah, I think, I think to, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're, if you're just sort of naturally wired like an entrepreneur, it's difficult. It's difficult for you to be obedient. It's very difficult for me to be obedient. I'm, I'm, I'm incapable of taking direction if it doesn't, if it, if it's not what I believe in. Yeah, not in line with where you want to go. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, went to SC. Did you go straight on to Stanford out of SC? Was there some first job out of school before you went on for your master's? No, I. Um, so I, I researched. I mean, I knew when I was. First year at SC, I knew I wanted to be CEO of it of a, of a mid-sized company. I ah, decided okay. that, yeah. Well, so so all of this was about how do I figure out a way to belong here in this new culture. So the rock star thing, you know, didn't pan out. So <laughs> right. my new plan was if I become CEO, people will accept me. People will like me. I'll be an American. And and so these things all, I think, to some extent stemmed out of insecurity as an immigrant and and so so you know i researched the schools and of course i wanted to go to harvard at that time um be- because i wanted to be sure you know that, that, that i was going to stack the, credentials. the deck had the Absolutely. credentials right yeah. right so so ultimately uh you know i realized that you know you're not going to get into harvard without substantial work experience so i went to work it was a you know very difficult job market. I think it was around 1990. There was a recession. I couldn't get an interview, um, and and so you know through some again relatives and some friends, you know they turned me on to this bus company here in LA, and uh, you know so of course they made me controller of this bus company with no prior accounting experience, <laughs> which you know should have been a red flag. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, the company was in bankruptcy, and, and so nobody wanted that job. But, you know, we worked um, and, and, and really did everything that was necessary and possible, brought in investors, and we started to turn that thing around, and then I went off to business school. How long did you stay in that job? I think about close to three years. Wow. And did you have people responsibility as well, or was it more of an individual contributor role? Well, sure. I, I, you know, as the first thing I did as a, uh, you know, controller, never having done any accounting before is I hired an assistant controller. 
<laughs> right. Good move. <laughs> and of course, there was, you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, payroll, all that stuff. So, what was it like managing people for the first time then? Um, I was completely inadequate. You know, I, I, you know, you just, you have no concept of how that relationship works. Here you are. I mean, I was 20, 23 and, and, you know, you, you don't know, you don't have the confidence, um, to not tell people what to do. And, and, and so you just don't know how that relationship works and you're so self-conscious and you're, you know, you're so insecure. And, and so, you know, you just, you wish people would just do what they need to do so you wouldn't have to be in that position. <laughs> so, you know, but, but these, are, these are necessary evils. It's all part of the learning process. Looking at that three-year period, what were, what were some of the leadership lessons you learned? You know, um, everybody I worked with was older than me. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, you know, I, and I was in charge. So I would tell people what to do and they would tell me to go jump off a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I didn't have a solution to that problem, but at least I realized that there was a problem there. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, you sort of build relationships and everybody figures out how to move forward. And so, so that, that stopped there. I would say, you know, the result of that and many, many other lessons is today I'm, I'm in charge here and I don't ever tell anybody what to do. I make suggestions, I make recommendations and, and, you know, I, I, respect the talent and the effort and, and, uh, what everybody on my team brings to the table. And, you know, occasionally they tell me to go jump off a bridge, but <laughs> more often they tell me, you know, I'm full of crap or they disagree or, or whatever. And I, and I like that back and forth. And today I have the experience and the confidence to not take that personally. And, you know, it doesn't bother me. And, and, and I think, you know, my team has the right and probably an obligation to speak up uh, when, 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 when they need to. So back to school, got into Stanford. Again, no easy task. Um, did your two-year degree there. And then what was that first job coming out of, uh, out of Stanford? Well, so, you know, there's an important lesson here I should probably, you know, uh, mention. I, um, probably several lessons. You know, I, I originally wanted to go to Harvard. And so... You know, I, I, I applied for whatever reason, I applied to Harvard and to Stanford. Now, I didn't apply to any other schools. Lesson one, that's dumb. <laughs> Have a backup plan, <laughs> right? Now, I luckily got in, but I chose Stanford over, over Harvard because I was, yes. But, but I, I, I chose Stanford because I was dating this girl here in L.A., and I thought, oh my God, this is the one. And so I'm going to go to Stanford so I can fly back every other weekend and we can be together. <laughs> be close enough, right. And, and, and yeah, it's going to work out great. And that all did work out great until she broke up with me two months before I graduated. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm sure there's a lesson in there somewhere. <laughs> well, Stanford's a very decent school. And uh, what was your first job coming out of there? So I actually took a job um, at what was then called AT&T Equipment, which then became Lucent and became Avaya. And, you know, originally was one of the, one of the uh, I think it was called Western Bell many years ago. And I lasted in that job, I want to say, two days. <laughs> Wasn't a good fit. It was absolutely not a good fit. And, I, you know, I, I went up to Northern California and I would walk through this building and, the dim lighting 
the closed doors, the engineering culture, which, you know, not all engineers, certainly today the engineering culture is very different in Silicon Valley. But back then, you know, that, that wasn't me. I, I was looking for some life. I was looking for conversation. I was looking for a challenge, an adventure. It was just not a fit for me. And I was, I think I, I was ready to jump out a window by the second day. <laughs> I had already interviewed with, uh, you know, Taco Bell at the time because, you know, that was the only other thing I knew was the restaurant business. And, and, and they were back so in Southern I, California at that time, right? Or were they, yeah, so I got you back near home. So I called them back and I said, uh, that offer, is it still good? <laughs> and they took you back. And, and, and they took me back and, and yes, and I was, I was gone the next day. That was the start of your fast food career. So did you move right into management again with that role? Were you more in an individual contributor position to start? You know, this was the time uh, when, when Taco Bell was still owned by Pepsi and it was doing this weird thing, which anybody with any experience in the restaurant business today can tell you is wrong, which is they were, they were, they were improving the bottom line by taking labor out of all levels. And so you, you, had, um, you had store managers who were running four and five stores, and they had demoted the operators, the people who really knew how to run stores, and they had gone out and hired college graduates as business managers to run four and five stores. And then they had what was district manager had now become a market manager, and they were running 20, 30, 40 stores. And that's just not, that's just not doable. And so the business started to deteriorate. At the same time, the whole value menu, the, the, the 59, 79, 99, was doing the brand in. Um, they were just backed into a corner, low quality and low price. At some point, there's no place to go. And, and so, you know, the, that business was in turnaround mode. And, you know, at, right around the time I was there, Pepsi decided to spin it off and eventually became Tricon. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. So you kind of rose through the ranks there and obviously worked with a lot of different bosses. But what were some of the best or worst lessons you've learned from bosses you had during that early part of your career? So I, I didn't last at Taco Bell very long. Um, I was there for maybe a couple of years. I was in an operations role. And, and you know, I, I think there were two issues and why I was not a fit. Um, you know, one is that pure operations was, was too much execution and not enough strategy for me. I wanted to know how decisions were made. I didn't want to just be out there executing them. It wasn't enough for me. I was you know, I wanted to understand sort of the business from, from all angles. And the other re issue was that I was, my entrepreneurial style was not a good fit for an organization of that size. The corporate culture. Yeah. And, and the culture was sort of very sort of stuffy. And they, there was this thing they referred to as Pepsi pretty. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I find those kinds of things annoying and insulting. You know, people, people should be respected for who they are as individuals. How did you you know, kind of adjust to, or maybe you haven't, so maybe I don't want to assume anything, but, you know, you mentioned a couple of times the immigrant status and, you know, wanting to kind of have to prove yourself, wanting to be accepted. D did you ever find a place in your career, either now or somewhere along the way, where that didn't matter as much? You know, you felt more American and you felt like a part of rather than apart from. You know, uh, at some point it stopped becoming about, uh, it stopped being about becoming an American. That, you know, I, at some point I just forgot that that was the issue. The, those, those were the drivers in the early years. But at some point it became about how I was 
was or was not a fit in this or that organization. Organization, and, yeah, yeah. And you're probably more sensitive to that than others, I imagine, right? Given your background history. You, you become that because of the feedback you get, which is, you know, uh, you're not easy to work with. Uh, <laughs> you're very driven. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're, you're not particularly yeah. obedient. <laughs> yes, yes. All of those things. And, 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 you know, and people would refer to me as, as, you know, you come across as too confident and, and I knew better. I knew, and I knew that that's, that's not really what they meant. And I knew that that's not really what it was. And, and what it really was, was this, you know, sort of this sense of urgency on steroids. Yeah. I, I was driven, you know, far too much because I was trying to make up for something. I was trying to fix something. And, and that's not right. And I think there was a, and I still remember very clearly the transformation at some point, you know, one of my entrepreneurial ventures was uh, me and this, this friend and I went to Arizona and we started a spa company um, and, and, you know, built a couple units and, you know, it started to show some level of success. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, he bought me out and I, you know, wanted to go back to the restaurant business. And so, you know, I, I, saw, I still remember I sold my shares to him for $86,000. And that felt like all the money in the world. <laughs> right, right. So suddenly now I was, I had arrived and, and, and I thought, you know, but, but what it did for me it was, was it gave me a couple of years of working on my own and, and, and time to reflect. And then I went to Jamba Juice and I called, I remember Karen Kelly at Jamba Juice and I said, you know, you don't know me, but here's who I am. I'm coming to work there. And I, and I will do whatever you need. And it was my first attempt at trying to be a good employee. Were they still in their early days then? How, how, how old a company were they at that time? So, so this was 2006. Uh, the company was, you know, give or, give or take 15, 15, 20 years old. But, you know, that, the year I arrived, there was an IPO. And, and, you know, a year later or two years later, the company nearly went bankrupt. Um, because, you know, this, this massive, you know, um, plan to build out a lot of stores. I think the company built 140 stores in one year after having built no more than 20 or 30 a year before that. And, 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 you know, we ended up closing a lot of those stores. So there were a lot of lessons in there, but I spent, you know, about six years or so at Jamba Juice and I did very well. I rose up very quickly because I stopped focusing on my issues and myself and, and, what I was trying to prove, and I started just trying to serve, just trying to be a good employee. And it was amazing to me how quickly people now see the value in you. Responded to that. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's a good lead into my next question, which is kind of how has your leadership style evolved over time? So, you know, I, I, I think very three-dimensionally. I'm, I, I think I'm very strategic, um, but I because of all of the jobs I've had, all the various companies I've worked for, and because I've done operations, finance, marketing, development, strategy, et cetera, and because I enjoy the work, I enjoy uh, having, you know, sort of a hands-on approach, I've learned to very sort of, in a very smooth way, to move horizontally between marketing, operations, finance. So when I have a conversation, I think about all of these functions at the same time. It's, it's all one one holistic business to me, but I've also developed the ability to go 50,000 foot level and then 30 seconds later, dive down into minutia. 
and so I can move across this, um, you know, this plane or two planes, if you will, very comfortably. And I, and I, and I, to, today I can't see any other way to do business. I can't see not understanding, certainly in my current job, not understanding all of the functions or not being able to do detail as well as, you know, strategic high level, um, you know, thinking. That's a very good skill. A lot of people aren't able to do that, particularly being able to shift gears because you really are doing it on two planes, right? You're doing it both from an elevation standpoint and also on the horizontal plane, right? Across the various disciplines. We spoke a little bit earlier about uh, wanting to get to know what Yoshinoya is and who they are. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that brand and uh, why you chose them in, in what you're you know doing there today. So Yoshinoya is actually, I think, probably one of the first QSRs in the world. Um, you know, the, the company goes back 120 years in Japan. The first store was in, 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 the, fishing, in uh, the fish market in Tokyo. And they served this, you know, rice bowl with, with beef on top and this wonder, wonderful beef broth. And that's a staple in Japan today. Mm-hmm, the company mm-hmm. has around 3,000 stores globally. And the company entered the U.S. market about 40 years ago. And, and you know, they had the same model here that they had in Japan for the most part. And through various decisions that were made to evolve the brand, it got to a place where it, you know, sort of leveled off at a hundred stores, all pretty much in Southern California. And, you know, it, it, it was struggling. The, the business had been struggling for many years. And, and, you know, the, the, the main issue there was that as is the model with many Japanese companies, they often send a CEO from Japan for a tour of duty of call it five years. Well, imagine how long it takes to learn the language and learn the culture and learn uh, the business environment, which is very different, very different than, than, than Japan. And then you go back and another new person comes in and starts all over again. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so hiring me was really the first time that Yoshinoya decided to hire someone local hire a local CEO with local experience. And, you know, the, the, the business responded very well. We, we turned, you know, after many years of declining sales and transactions, we are now in our fifth year of sales growth. And, and the past four years, we've had same-store sales growth, growth ranging between 4 and 7%. And, and we've had, yeah, we, thank you. And we've had transaction growth every year. Tell us a little bit about company culture there. You know, uh, we've referred to it a little earlier in our conversation, but you know, what are your thoughts on, on building a culture? Uh, it sounds like you probably had to um, do some transitions with them, right? Did you proceed or rather follow a, a Japanese CEO? So I followed the Japanese CEO. Um, and, and um, you know, the culture that had been developed here was this weird hybrid between, you know, the Japanese culture a Japanese style of doing business, which works very well in Japan, but when implemented here, it turns out to be something that nobody really recognizes. It was it it was this very directive, um, sort of uh, disempowering style, because the hierarchy and seniority are very important in the Japanese culture, and and you know that works in Japan. Um, because people at all levels understand that and know what that means and how to respond to it. But here it led to a sense of entitlement. It's, it, it's let, you know, lack of initiative, lack of decision-making. And so, you know, the business from a management standpoint was anemic at all levels. And so we made a variety of, of, of you know, 
desperately needed changes in personnel at the senior level and and um, you know ultimately began to turn that culture around and that you know culture is not something that changes easily uh, especially when you're trying to go from one extreme to the other the culture that we have here today is you know it's it's I would say it's very performance based, but not the typical kind of performance base where you know people are are just sort of very myopic about hitting numbers and all that. It's it runs a bit like a small business. It runs a bit like a family business. We have you know I I hire very experienced people. I hire uh, the, my management team is 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 very. Experience. They worked at a variety of brands. Years, years of doing mostly, what they do. mostly out of QSR. I can imagine. Mostly out of QSR, or or you know other parts of the restaurant segments of the restaurant business. But we we are all a bit quirky, and and I think that's probably true of all companies. But I think in this company, you're not judged for showing it. And I think we have, you know, I am very informal because all of those years that I worked for those, you know, very stuffy companies, I, I hated it. And I, you know, wanted to be myself. And so when I got here and I got to be CEO, that's, that's the kind of culture I created. So, you know, if, if I come into your office to chat with you and I start putting my foot on your desk, the first couple of times you'll think it's disrespectful the third time you're going to come into my office and you're going to put your feet on my desk, <laughs> you know. So, so eventually I'm gonna I'm gonna taint you. And yeah, I'm gonna you're shifting the culture. Yeah. You. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about people. I know we've got just a few minutes left, but what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in, Dar? You know, it, it depends on the position. I, I look for, um, you know, if it's if it's if it's a more senior position, then obviously you look for experience that's very relevant. Because that's really what you're what you're hiring at a senior level. If you're looking for a a more you know junior level, then you're looking for drive and ambition and 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 a variety of other things. And we use a lot of sort of testing methodologies to help us get get to who this person is. But I would say the common thread that I've learned is critical: is you've got to hire people who are a cultural fit, because it does not matter how good their skill set is. In the wrong culture, they will not perform. So true. How do you interview and hire? Do you like panel interviews? Do you do one-on-ones? Do you prefer short or long interviews? What, you know, what's your what's your approach? And let's let's just take, for example, a direct report, right? This is someone that, you know, is going to report directly to you. So so, you know, I, I have people on my team who are very good at, at you know, my my uh, VP of HR is very good at, at what he does. And and so he, you know, as He's one of the few people in the world I actually listen to sometimes. <laughs> he knows <laughs> though, how to sort he, to your preferences. <laughs> yeah, though, though, he, though he would tell you that that's not the case. Uh, but, you know, like, like everything else I do, my, my, my methods are a bit unorthodox. I, I like to watch someone being interviewed. Um, and, 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 you know, when I'm You mean sitting in someone, the room when, with yes. someone else, huh? Okay, yes. interesting. So a lot of time, which, which frustrates my team because they'll, they'll – they look at me like, what, what are you talking about? Why? Um, and, and then, you know, and I'll jump in when I have questions and I, you know, I jump in a lot. Um, but you know, when I'm interviewing someone and I'm going through a list of questions, et cetera, I'm in my head and, and, and that's not where I want to be. I want to be watching this person. I want to understand what's going on. I want to see the body language. I want to hear the tone of their voice and, and 
you know, then, then questions pop up. The one question that pops up a lot in, in, when I interview and I ask over and over again is, why did you leave that job? And I get a story. And then I, you know, five minutes later, I come back and go, uh, j just tell me again, why did you leave that job? And, and you know, I'm trying to get to the, the reality. You know, there are people, just because someone interviews well doesn't mean they're going to do a good job. And, and vice versa. And so, you know, for once, I'd like to have someone say, yeah, I got fired because I did a very poor job. I, I think I hire that person just because he's honest or she's uh, being humble. Yeah. But, but, but nobody, nobody ever says that yet. We all know it happens all the time. So I think I'd hire that person just for authenticity. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Darvin CG, you've been very, very generous with your time. We've got one last question for you that we like to ask all the CEOs and you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who's got their eyes on their own corner office in the future? So I think it depends on, on who you are. I think, so let, 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 me, let me explain this way. If you're somebody who's generally not worried about your future, things are going to work out fine. Yeah, you'll take a job because it looks like fun. And, you know, you'll do a so-so job because everything will be okay in the end. My suggestion to you is, you know, take it a little more seriously. Look down the road. Think about where your current path is going to take you in five years, in 10 years, and maybe put a plan together that matches that vision. And if you don't have a vision, get one. That's critical. If you don't have a vision, get one. The vision may be and will be off, and that's okay, but at least it gets you moving in a direction. Now, the flip side, if you're the kind of person like I was- <laughs> At is, the age of 20, <laughs> wanted yeah, to be a CEO. <laughs> yeah, very intense and very worried. And, 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 you know, and, and you see these people and, and, and in the interview process, you know, sometimes. And, and you know, they just- A little paranoid, just, maybe. <laughs> yeah, chomping at the bits, a little paranoid. My advice to you is relax. <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna it be okay. It's gonna be okay, it, all right. Because the worst thing that could happen is that you reach your goal and then look back and say, and I didn't get to live. Dar, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and thank you for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you, Brant. This was fun. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.